you? Oh my god, Hannah, I'm good. How are you? Doing well, can't complain. The weather's beautiful. I just made myself a delicious coffee and I wanted to feel fancy and liven up my day, so I put in a wine glass. Ooh, I've done that. <laughs> like an iced coffee? An iced coffee. And then I put a fun twisty straw just to feel even extra special. Cute. I've done that. <laughs> it's like the pretty thing at my desk that I can look at. <laughs> Makes you feel better. And then you have like, you feel like you did something. Like you made that. Yeah, that's true. Like just taking the five to 10 minutes out of my day to do something completely different than just typing at my computer to like use my creativity and come up with a tasty coffee drink. It does feel good and rejuvenating. I'm actually visiting my parents and my mom was buying more coffee because when we both drink a lot of coffee. So when I'm home, she has to stock up. And she bought this coffee from a company called Copper Moon, and she bought it because it has, like, space motif on it. It's so cute. It's called Bean Me Up. So, like, beam me up. Oh, that's awesome. But it's Bean Me Up. It's so cute. And their company is so cool. It's, excuse me, it's sustainable sourcing, and they focus on empowering women farm workers and enhance income for small farmers and climate change adaption and mitigation that's fantastic i love that yeah Yeah, i'm curious to see if they have a whole bean because i don't know what happened but one day i woke up and became insufferable (laughs) and now i prefer to grind whole beans a true coffee snob I know. I'm not I'm I'm not terrible, but I am borderline uh, insufferable. I will You're fine, Anna. You just like the nicer things in life. You know. So Anna, when you talked about space coffee, it reminded me of this place I visited in Chicago and it was called Dark Matter Coffee, the mothership. Like the oh actual place where they um roasted the beans was called the mothership. Very cool, very space themed. I really loved it. I saved the bag. Um <laughs> That I had the coffee out of. Cute. All right. You want to just jump right into this one? Yes. Okay. So, Hannah, you want to introduce this one since it was your idea? Sure. I'd love to. So I was sitting there thinking like, oh, what space topic should we do for our next episode? Because Anne and I did our coffee chat for the last one. So we wanted to do something technical for this next episode. And, you know, I was just like skimming through space topics on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) what did you google something like aerospace topics but then do you know how you go down separate pages in wikipedia so i remember going down some random page about like the solar system and then it shows like related pages and and then all of a sudden i saw lagrange points i was like oh you know what we can do a pretty like pretty good episode on this so and then i threw it over to anna and anna was like yeah let's do it i know because Lagrange points, I wrote in my notes, is the very definition of a buzzword in the aerospace world. Everybody (laughs) loves to talk about Lagrange points. Yeah, and it's funny because you don't hear about it much in high school and college until you take some sort of dynamics. Yeah, and then everybody loves them. Yeah, absolutely. They're super nifty. I'm so excited to get into it. All right, I'm Anna. And I'm Henna. And this is... But but it it is is Rocket Rocket Science. the technical description and i just started out my notes with everyone loves lagrange points (laughs) 
We do. <laughs> we do. And so I found this article from space.com that has the title that had the title. I'll link it in there. Sources. Lagrange points parking places in space. And I remember thinking, wow, this is really adorable, but I'm kind of annoyed because that would have been a great title for this episode. But now we have to think of something else. That is such a great title. And it's so funny that you bring this up because I also found a YouTube video with the exact same, the exact same title. And I thought it was really cute too. But yeah, we should huge like, bummer. title it the same thing, but like change all the words. Like car places in the atmosphere. No, <laughs> like, I don't know. It would obviously be outside of the atmosphere. Work in progress. Um. All right, and so I wrote, Welcome to the latest edition of Anna Tries to Explain Something Without a Visual Aid when she could really benefit from having a visual aid. And then I don't know what was going on, but I just wrote, I am not okay, underneath (laughs) that statement. So uh, I guess I wasn't all right. Uh, I'm doing good now, though. So You were having, like, the Anna show in your brain. (laughs) I really was. Oh, man. But yeah, the visual aid thing, so true. I definitely felt the same way when I was doing the technical description for gravity assist maneuvers. That's what I was thinking of. I was mm-hmm. literally like, ah, this is rough. Yeah. But you okay. got this, Anna. I can't wait. Thank- I really appreciate the moral support. <laughs> so I'm going to try my best here. We're going to say you have two large co-orbiting bodies, which lucky for us, we do. So for this explanation, I'm going to use the Earth and the Sun. So now let's add a satellite into the mix. So we've got the Earth, we've got the Sun, and we've got a satellite living its best life. There are exactly five points between the Earth and the Sun where the gravitational forces exerted by them onto the satellite would exactly balance out the centrifugal force felt by the satellite. What this means is that the satellite would stay in the same position relative to both the Earth and the Sun at all times. So that is a Lagrange point in a nutshell. Now, a lot just happened there. So we're going to break this down. And I'm going to start with Lagrange point one, commonly referred to as L1. They really went for the creativity there. (laughs) If you have a satellite orbiting the sun that is located between the sun and the earth, it will move faster than the earth. Okay, so you got a satellite orbiting the sun. It is located closer to the sun than earth is. So this satellite will orbit the sun faster than Earth will. This is simply because it is closer to the sun, and therefore the force of gravity between it and the sun is stronger than that of Earth and the sun, making the velocity of the satellite higher. All right, however, if the satellite is placed directly between the Earth and the sun, Earth's gravity will start to act upon it and pull it in the opposite direction, slowing it down. So then the Earth gets into the mix. Satellite starts slowing down. Now... If the distance is just perfect, in this case, it's about a hundredth of the distance to the sun, the gravitational pull of the Earth and the gravitational pull of the sun balance each other out and create an equilibrium point where the satellite travels slowly enough such that it maintains its position between the Earth and the sun. So I think of this in the absolute simplest explanation that only kind of applies here is if you have two kids who weigh exactly the same on a seesaw, the seesaw can balance. Yeah, that's a really good visual. It's so simple and only kind of applies. But essentially what you have here is that there is an exact distance between the Earth and the Sun. 
where a satellite could be orbiting such that the forces of the sun and the earth acting on that satellite exactly balance each other out. Meaning that satellite stays in the same position relative to both the earth and the sun. So people are like, oh, objects don't move at Lagrange points. Well, to be in orbit, objects have to move. Nothing nothing cannot move. It is moving. It's just yeah. relative to the sun and relative to the earth, they're, it's staying in the same position. And if you're interested in a more detailed explanation, a man named Joseph Schoer wrote a blog post about them and his explanation is so good. I'm going to link it in the show notes. It was the best of every article I found. I don't know who this man is. His blog was great. Now, as I mentioned, there are five Lagrange points. Something to note, every planet in our solar system actually has five Lagrange points. This is not just true for the Earth. So Venus in the Sun and Mercury in the Sun, all the planets. But for this example, I'm going to use Earth because that's where we live. So, I don't know. It's the planet I have the most familiarity with, personally. Yeah. Like, any any object that has a gravitational pull associated with it, and there's another object in the vicinity that has another that has a gravitational pull associated with it, those will have Lagrange points. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Hannah. No problem. So, L1, as already discussed, is located between the Earth and the Sun. L2 follows the same principles as L1, except it is located past Earth's orbit. L1 is Sun, L1, Earth, and L2 is Sun, Earth, L2. So L3, again, same principles as L1 and L2, except it is behind the Sun, opposite Earth. So L3 goes L3, Sun, Earth. So while a satellite sitting at any of these points would stay in the same position relative to Earth and the Sun, these points are only metastable. So if you think about it, you have a ball sitting at the very tip top of a hill. It's standing still for now, but one gush of wind and it's rolling down the hill. What this means for L1, L2, and L3, it means that they are susceptible to gravitational perturbations. Essentially, that just means disruptions. The gust of wind would be that gravitational perturbation trying to pull it out of that Lagrange point. So to get it back, you need to fire some kind of thruster or engine to keep it at that point. Yes, that's true. And these perturbations can be from a lot of different things. Like, like, Anna said the deviation in a gravitational force or say an asteroid passes by it and Im- impacts it somehow, you're going to have to fire thrusters to stay in the same in the same vicinity. Yes. All right. Now we're going to get, there's only two left. We have L4 and L5. Uh, these are going to be really hard to explain without a picture, but I highly recommend if you are not operating a motor vehicle, please look up a picture of this. If you are driving, <laughs> please look up a picture of it when you get to your destination. L4 and L5 have orbits that are very close to that of Earth's, meaning they orbit the Sun at almost the same distance as Earth does. However, L4 is ahead of Earth's orbit and L5 is behind it, and both are at 60 degrees between the Earth and the Sun. I just wrote again, like, please go look at a picture. I can't do better than that. So it would be a triangle. So L4 would be a vertex of the triangle. The Sun and the Earth would be the other vertices of the triangle. And then L5 would be a vertex of another triangle, and then the sun and the earth would be the vertices of that triangle. So you got two triangles. You do. But what is really important here is that they're almost about the same distance from the sun as earth is, except one orbits ahead of it and the other one orbits behind it. I think that's the most important here. But yes, they are also triangles. Now, unlike L1, L2, and L3, L4 and L5 are actually stable. A few articles I was reading described this as like a, in quotes, ball in a large bowl. Or I think of one of those big funnel things where you drop a quarter and it spins around and around and around. 
Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. So the end of that funnel would be that ball in the bowl where it just constantly is drawn to the bottom. So L4 and L5 aren't stable, meaning objects will naturally orbit the Lagrange point, like that quarter. Because of this stability, objects are actually drawn to these points, and L4 and L5 have asteroids and dusts accumulated there. Again, a very oversimplified way that I think of this is like stuff gathering under your sofa. Like <laughs> You don't look under there often. <laughs> you don't move the stuff there. So the stuff in the main part of your living room eventually gets pushed under the couch. And once it's under the couch, because you don't look there, it stays there. However, while Lagrange points exist for all two-body systems, L4 and L5 are only stable if the mass ratio between the two bodies, in this case it would be the Earth and the Sun, is larger than 24.96. So the Earth-Sun system actually satisfies this. The mass of the Earth is 5.972 times 10 to the 24th kilograms, and the mass of the Sun is 1.989 times 10 to the 30th kilograms. So if you divide the mass of the Sun by the mass of the Earth, you get 1,772. So way above 24.9. Yeah. I thought about transferring it into pounds, but I was like, we're going to divide them anyway. So units go away. <laughs> now you might be wondering, okay, this is cool, but why do these points matter? And I think Hannah's going to get into this a little more, but just as a fun teaser. Lagrange points serve as a great way to observe planets or even the sun, since they can look at the same point on the planet for the entire orbit. Currently in L2, ESA, or the European Space Agency, the European Space Agency has their space telescope, Planck, and it is planned and it is currently the planned location for the James Webb Space Telescope. So that's cool. Yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah. Lagrange points also serve as a great way to study the sun and possibly could serve as a location for a space elevator that isn't located at Earth's equator. So if you don't know what I'm talking about and you want to learn more about that, We've actually got an episode all about the space elevator, and it was one of the first episodes we ever recorded, episode yeah. five. Yeah. I know. Fun throwback. L1 has the Solar and Heliospheric Observatory and Deep Space Climate Observatories. I remember reading that, and I thought that was really cool that there's two observatories hanging out in L1. That is cool. Yeah. Very important. It allows us to do observations of the Earth, of the Sun, of the solar system, um, and get instrumentation out there outside of the earth yes they could also like there's a lot of talk about could you put like a a station or a, a pit fuel stop depot. in space a fuel depot yeah pit stop exactly at one of these lagrange points and use it as a jumping off point to get to further planets yeah yeah and the cool thing to realize is that you know there's a few of these lagrange points there are a few parking spaces parking spaces between these uh, between these celestial bodies. It's easy to think that you can just park your spaceship anywhere in space, but you can't because gravity is always acting on it. And if you want it to stay in a, in a certain position, you're going to constantly be having to use fuel. And these parking spaces allow you to minimize the use of fuel. You only just need to burn a little bit of adjustment fuel like Anna mentioned earlier. So these are really critical places in space that can help us save fuel, make cool observations, be pit stops, like Anna said. Yeah, I mean, their potential is really cool. It's really endless, which is why I think they're such a buzzword. They deserve the title. 
Yeah, I am interested to see in the future how because there are limited positions and there's going to be even a larger like impetus to get more more scientific equipment out there, but then also more stations out there, how the policies are going to revolve around that. Yeah, if they're going to fill up, I don't know. Yeah. Man, it's just going to become like a mall parking lot. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. (laughs) Where you just drive around and around and then you try to find somebody going out to their car and discreetly follow them to their spot. (laughs) Yes. All right. Do you want to take a quick break before you jump into the history? Yeah, let's do it. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. I love how we say welcome back, like, they went somewhere, but really, we're the only people who went anywhere. <laughs> like, they're like, I've been here the whole time, but thanks. Yeah, right? <laughs> Maybe we should just be like, welcome back, Anna. Welcome back, Henna. <laughs> I always, every time, one of these days, Henna's gonna get sick of it, but every time we call each other again after the break, I always say, it's been so long. And one of these days, I think she's gonna get tired of it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> You're too nice. Okay. All right. I very much want to hear about the history of Lagrange points. All right. So Lagrange points are named after Joseph Louis Lagrange, who was an 18th century mathematician. I'm going to get into Lagrange's academic life because it's too impressive not to share, and it will cover the discovery of the Lagrange points. Okay. So if anybody else is really bad at this, the 18th century is the 1700 years. Yes. Thank you, Anna. I always have to remind myself that it's the 21st century and we're in the 2000s. So true. It's insanity, thinking about how this was discovered in the 1700s. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Lagrange was born in Turin, Italy in 1736. He grew up in Turin and attended the College of Turin. When he was 17 years old, he first got interested... When he was 17 years old is when he first got interested in mathematics. And that was... And that was because he came across a memoir by Edmund Haley. So Haley was an astronomer and mathematician. You might remember him as the man who discovered Haley's comet, the one, the comet that's visible from Earth every 75 to 76 years. Okay. Did you ever watch Hey Arnold when you were growing up? Yes, I did. They had an episode where they were trying to see Haley's comet. I don't remember that episode, but whenever I hear Haley's comet, I think about like there's a song that references Haley's Comet. Um, I don't know what it is. I don't okay. remember. But if someone out there knows, let us know. <laughs> I'm going to Google it. Shine Down Second Chance. Oh, 2009. What a throwback. Oh, yeah. This was a song that came up on my Pandora in high school. <laughs> <laughs> you felt the coolest, I am sure. <laughs> Um, Okay, so after reading that memoir, he dived into studying mathematics. Within a year of studying math, he had become accomplished and known in the field and and he was made a lecturer at the school. Could you imagine being like, I think I'm going to study this topic in depth. And a year later, they're like, well, you're a master. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Instead of like now, it's like you have to go to go to get a PhD for six to eight years. Oh, God, I know. Yeah, that is really impressive. Yeah, it's it's insanely impressive. His first major contribution to the field was in a letter to Euler. In this letter, he solved the isoparametrical problem. 
which was about how, so this isoparametrical problem, what this means is that it was a problem about how to enclose the largest amount of area given a specific perimeter. Methods to determine the solution to this were being discussed by the mathematical community for half a century. Euler recognized, so Euler gets this letter from, um, Euler gets this letter from Lagrange about his proposal on solving the isoparametrical problem. Euler recognizes that Lagrange has proposed a more elegant solution, and this was the beginning of the calculus of variations. So the calculus of variations involves getting to a maximum or minimum using very small changes. I've super oversimplified this. It's a very uh, complex math field, and um, I will recommend, I recommend looking into it if you're interested in learning a lot more about it. Euler actually delayed the release of his own paper on the isoparametrical problem because he wanted 19-year-old Lagrange to further elaborate on a solution and be a co-author on this paper. This put Lagrange in the forefront of mathematics. Okay, I will, like, shout out to Euler here, who wasn't just like, go away, you're 19 and know nothing. Right, and then also shout out to Euler for just not taking credit for his work and because he was in a position of power. Yeah, I'm gonna say, I know nothing else about Euler, so I don't wanna make a full opinion about him, but he seems like a cool guy. Yes, I'm in Anna's boat too. I've done some research for this episode, but I don't know completely about Euler. I was reading a lot about Lagrange. <laughs> in 1758, working with his students in Turin, Lagrange released five volumes of work known as the Miscellanea Turinensia. The first volume contains a theory of the propagation of sound, in which he calls out a mistake by Newton. Very impressive. Wow. He also, yeah, he also corrects work done by Taylor. So you might think of the Taylor series um, if you've taken calculus. Oh, wow. Not for a long time. Yeah. So he, cal he corrects the work done by Taylor, de Alembert, and Euler, and in general covers echoes, beats, and compound sounds. I don't know why I wrote compound souls. <laughs> I didn't even notice. <laughs> in my show notes. The second volume uh, written in this Miscellanea Taranensia, the second volume written by Lagrange, covers the calculus of variations, which I mentioned earlier. The third volume discusses solutions to several dynamics problems using the calculus of variations and also gets into general differential equations of motion for three bodies moving under mutual attractions. So you may be thinking, okay, we're getting warmer to the discovery of Lagrange points. And you're right. That was what I was thinking. <laughs> I was like, wow, how are we going to get here? <laughs> Thank you, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. Thanks for keeping me encouraged through the show. You do the same thing for me. All right. So the next two volumes covered contributions to problems involving astronomy. As he was working on the mathematical problems concerning astronomy, his, he sent memoirs to Paris. One of the more notable memoirs was his essay concerning three-body problem. In this paper, he presented a solution to the problem involving three masses that all executed elliptical orbits around the center of the mass of a system, but these masses were configured such that their locations in space form triangles. So from this work, uh, we get L4 and L5, and also along the way, L1 and L2 and L3 were also discovered 
by Lagrange. However, I have to say that this is some is something I read in a research paper, but in another YouTube video, I did see that someone called out that Euler actually discovered the first three Lagrange points. I don't know what is entirely true because I have been reading different um, different things online. So if you know for sure, if you're a historian, then please send us a note and we will gladly correct it in our next episode. Yeah, I'm really curious now. And to sum it all up, I just end with um, how over the course of his life, Lagrange wrote the volumes I discussed above and the Mécanique Analytique, which is essentially a manual covering Lagrange's method of analytical mathematics. Analytical mathematics it is part of classical mechanical classical mechanics and has played an important role in theoretical physics and quantum physics. And on top of that, um, he submitted 100 to 200 papers to the academies of Berlin, Turin, and Paris. God. So he's had a very impressive academic life and has been a huge contributor to science. I'm exhausted just thinking about that. <laughs> right? 100 to 200 papers and multiple manuals. If you wrote 100 to 200 papers and that's it in a lifetime, I would be impressed. Also, think about it. Like, they were typing. This is nope. handwritten. Nope. Yo, God. Wow. I'm impressed. And, like, you couldn't just look stuff up on the internet. Yeah. So true. Like, when I go outside and I look at this night sky, I definitely pull out my phone to be like, how do I... How do I figure out where the constellations are? Oh my god, I love that app. <laughs> I love so that app bad. too. <laughs> Some people are so good at being like, you see, you can see it up there. And I'm like, I cannot. Unless I... it's like the Big Dipper. I can't get it. <laughs> right? <laughs> All right. Before we close this out, do you want to tell everybody where they can find us? Yes, I'd love to, Anna. If you liked our episode, or if you have any other ideas for episodes, or you have some... Um, some suggestions for us, please reach out to us through our website, www.butitisrocketscience.com. On it, we have a contact us page. We also have a page for our merchandise, for our merch. Um, if you're interested in getting any But It Is Rocket Science gear, any But It Is Rocket Science, uh, But It Is Rocket Science tote bags, t-shirts, tanks, mugs, please go check out uh, our site. You can also find us on Instagram at but it is rocket science. You can find us at Twitter on but it is at but it is RS. And you can find us on our Facebook page at but it is rocket science. And if you buy merch, if you post it online and tag us, we love to see it. Yes, it always makes us so happy when we see pictures of people wearing our merch. All right, Anna, do you want to dive into your sources? I do. I have a whole bunch. So I started out with Wikipedia. As I've mentioned before, it's a great springboard. And then I had an article from NASA about Lagrange points, space.com about Lagrange points. Now, if you want a really, really good technical explanation, scienceworld.wolfram.com did a really great description of the physics of what goes on in very technical language. And then I did another NASA article. I found an article from the BBC. They did a great job talking about what causes different objects in orbit to speed up that article from the european space agency that i mentioned this one this is this guy's blog joseph shower he was awesome the article his blog post is called what's the deal with lagrange points <laughs> another article from uh, the european space agency all, all about the Planck telescope i used wikipedia to figure out what the mass of the earth and the sun were 
And then another article, apparently I used ESA a lot. Uh, so another article from the European Space Agency about the five Lagrange points. Perfect. And that's all I got. All right. So I had, um, I also had a blog called Galileo Unbound. And it the article on that blog that I specifically referenced was called The Three Body Problem, Longitude at Sea and Lagrange Points. I also used a few Wikipedia pages. One was for Edmund Haley. The other one was for Euler. Uh, I also used some university uh, EDU websites. So one was titled A Short Account of the History of Mathematics, specifically about Lagrange. Um, I used another university website to uh, provide an explanation on isoparametric problems. And then I have a YouTube video in here that's also about Lagrange points. All right, Anna, want to close it out? Sure thing. Until next time, space cadets. T minus three, two, one, lift off.